Hello and welcome to What on Earth, the podcast of the Environmental Investigation Agency, or EIA. I'm Paul Newman, EIA's Senior Press and Communications Officer, and today we're going to be taking a look at the illegal timber trade from Myanmar and how it's affected by the recent military coup. Joining me are Faith Doherty, our forest campaign leader, and Alec Dawson, forest campaigner, to give an overview of the situation in the country formerly known as Burma. And as we learn that three European timber firms from the Netherlands and Germany are facing prosecution over their imports of illicit timber from Myanmar, we'll also be talking about how tax evasion on teak exports and European regulations fit into the picture. Faith, Alec, welcome, and thanks for taking the time to share your thoughts with us. Hi, Paul. Hey, Paul. Now, EIO is one of the first organisations to start working on the ground in Myanmar on forest crime issues after the country took its first steps towards becoming a democracy back in 2011, when the military hunter which had ruled for almost 50 years was formally dissolved. Faith, before we go into forest issues, could you give us some idea as to what's actually going on in the country as a whole at present? Yes, of course. Um, In November last year, elections took place in the country. The NLD uh, won with uh, with resa- resounding win. There was absolutely no doubt about it. The army's proxy party lost very badly, um, and from November till February the first, there was a lot of rumours swirling um, about the actual election results. Um, taking a leaf out of Trump's book in the United States, uh, there was a lot of um, calls of foul play. Um, and that they had, in fact, won the election, et cetera, et cetera. On the evening of February the 1st, uh, the military junta uh, took control, uh, put in place emergency laws, and basically took control of the country. So since February the 1st, um, there has been um, an all-out civil disobedience movement that has been coordinated throughout the country, including in rural areas, Civil servants have been on strike. They've lost their jobs. Some with whom get housing with their jobs, they've also lost their housing. Um, We're looking at thousands of civil servants on strike who've refused to to go back and work with the dictatorship. Um, Citizens of all walks of life, but essentially this movement has been led by Generation Z. And on top of that, the ability to use uh, technology to stream live in in some instances what is actually happening on the ground, which has been escalating uh, in the most awful way um, since February the first to the point now where you really are talking about psychosis. I mean, this this is this is just dreadful. Seven year olds being killed in living rooms, um, terror at night when the soldiers are banging on gates and and going in to arrest people. Um, But throughout all of it, it is very, very clear that the majority of people who voted in the election and those who were not old enough to vote clearly have made the choice that for them, they either keep going, even if they are killed, or they will have to live under this dictatorship. So the context in which we're talking is a very different context to the one even in January of this year. Um, And so everything that we're talking about now, essentially what we believe is that in the past, and actually even during the quasi-democratically elected government over the last 10 years that the NLD shared with the military, 
um, there has been a plundering of Myanmar's natural resources, its wildlife, its timber, its, its uh, um, minerals. <clears throat> Dams are being constructed. I mean, there, there really has not exactly been the best plan. Um, but now, and even up until this morning, um, we can see that the plundering in the forest is really escalating. And it's, it's not well organized. Um, it's very difficult for us to be able to give exact information about who's behind what, as we normally do. And one of the reasons for that is that our partners and, our, and the forest monitors throughout the country um, are either in hiding, they're on the run, or they're part of the movement and unable to get into the forest to document the crimes that are taking place. So that, that's the context in which we're talking. And of course, all of the timber, <clears throat> excuse me, all of the timber that is, all of the, all the raw material that is going um, out of the country at the moment is going over the land borders into India, China. We're not sure about Thailand, but we do expect that to start happening as well um, because the ports are essentially have ground to a halt um, mainly due to the fact that people refuse to go to work. They have also joined the movement. So shipping is really curtailed. Um, and there has been a call not to use the ports that are controlled by the military. Um, so anything that's leaving the country, regardless of what laws may have been in place before, given that this is an illegitimate junta, anything leaving the country is deemed illegal. But in this instance, we go further than that, and we say that it is aiding and abetting and legitimizing a military hunter. Yeah. So how much of an influence behind the scenes did the old regime remain even when the country was taking its first steps towards becoming a more democratic entity um, in terms of like the amount of um, yeah, pocket lining that was going on? Oh, corruption was rife. Um, you know... <clears throat> It was it was a it was a different time in the sense that there was there was some sense of freedom, but the military apparatus and the institutions that were controlled by the military were the ones that controlled the borders, the finance. <clears throat> they control quite a lot. Um, the administration of the country, the civil servants, um, you know, they were run by something called GAD, which was the General Administration Department. But in our in our ten years working there with people and civilian government, um, you know, we we made friends and we tried very hard to engage with solutions to try and help them um, in order to really protect the last remaining ancient teak forests left in the world, yeah. um, or that side of the world at least. So there was an attempt, but. Um, very, very difficult to, to say whether or not we were able to, I mean, we definitely stopped the hemorrhaging. I mean, not just us alone, a lot of people were involved in the country. Hmm. Um, the Burmese have a, a very romantic relationship with teak. You know, there's a lot of history seeped with teak in the country. Some of it is very romantic. Um, but essentially, you know, us Brits were the first ones to go in there and plunder them. Um, it's all famous with the elephants logging, etc. Yeah, but I think that um, there was some progress made. I think the most important thing 
was that there was an acknowledgement that there was a problem. Um, but even during the 10 years we were there, it was very difficult to be able for them to be able to run a transparent system that essentially gave the information for traders to know the origin of the timber, where it had been logged, where the trees had been logged, and whether or not they'd actually done it in a sustainable way according to the laws, even though the laws weren't being implemented. So, you know, but it was worth it. Um, There were log bans. Um, and but more importantly, it was the ability to work with people, particularly in the ethnic areas um, where these forests are, and to work with them to come up with a system um, of transparency, um, whereby they were able. I mean, we learned so much from them about how things work and don't work. But there, there is a great love of Burmese forests by the people. And we were very fortunate to work with them, not just in the country. We were able to bring delegations of civil society over, uh, quite diverse, um, over to Europe, uh, to the UK, as well as Brussels, where they were able to speak directly to decision makers, to explain to those who were charged um, in implementing our laws. And they were able to be very honest and upfront about what was happening and why it was that there's just no way that the the current situation at that time, let alone now, was able to abide by any of the the, the laws um, or instructions um, that, that would give Myanmar the money and what the, the timber was actually worth yeah, yeah. Um, rather than it all being smuggled or stolen or circumvented so tax wasn't paid and all this kind of stuff. So, But for us, I think the, the most worrying thing that we have as a team is the, is the, the safety of our, our friends um, and the fact that they're still, even now, we're still getting photos. We're still getting information. Um, and as I said, even this morning, you can see big trucks barreling down roads with huge trees on the back of them. Um, but obviously, people are having to be very, very careful. Yeah. And we're not, being, we're not able to get the detail. But I will say this, anybody that is considering or even buys any timber from Myanmar is, um, is really – well, you're working with the military regime, quite frankly, yeah, and I wouldn't yeah. do it. I appreciate, obviously, in, in the last 10 years, the, as you said, that the forestry sector was still far from imperfect, though I get a sense from you it's kind of moving in the right direction. Um, now, are we in a situation where, un- under the new, the new system of the military in charge, is it becoming more brazen? Is it more open? Oh, absolutely, yeah. I mean, like I say, it's really disorganized as well. I mean, at least before they, they had criminal syndicates that knew what they were doing. Um, but no, this this is chancing it. This is you know trying to do it. I think I think you know it's really important to understand that during the during these past seven weeks, the banks have been crippled. International trade is not actually working. People people are not able to get into their bank accounts. Um, even the workers in the banks aren't going to work. 
Um, people are, are being forced to go, but they're refusing. Um, the country is in turmoil. It's in chaos. Yeah. Um, and the only one sure thing is that I, I, I really do not think that they anticipated this. I mean, this is the third coup that I, I know of. And we all knew what was going to come once people started to to organize and, and resist what was happening. We all knew what was coming. But I think even now um, there is shock and horror to the extent of what is actually happening in terms of their response, just through, down through the barrel of a gun, that's it. Um, but I think they themselves have miscalculated at the strength of the resistance um, and how far people are actually willing to go. And I, th I think they're probably quite worried, although they do have friends in yeah. neighboring countries that are sustaining them. And the international community has been absolutely appalling in its response, uh, including the fact that we are working very hard to expose those directly involved with the military and timber and forests. Um, we're also researching and, and working hard to try and get sanctions placed on the new minister uh, for uh, environment who is a military officer um, and who has a very questionable background. And, you know, right from there down to the ground, anybody that is going to invest in the natural resource sector is in, in essence supporting the military. And th there's no two ways about it. Yeah. So basically, if, if you're buying timber products or any other products from Myanmar at present, you're basically putting money directly into the pockets of the people that are behind this. Very much so. And, and you know, all the way along the chain. So who knows who else is profiting, but it's certainly not the people. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thanks for that. Alec, if I could turn to you for a minute, um, one of the most lucrative forestry exports for, for, for Myanmar is Burmese teak, as, as Faith said. It's, it's, I guess it's especially prized in the in the yachting industry around the world. Can you tell us something about the trade um, in Burmese teak as you've experienced it in, in recent years? Yes, yes, Ken. Um, yeah, Faith's absolutely right. It's teak that's one of the big exports of timber coming out of Myanmar. And Myanmar has the last um, sort of natural stands of natural forest teak left in the world, and that particular type of teak, natural teak, is prized in the in the uh, yachting sector and in the marine sector because it's particularly durable. Uh, it's got water resistance, um, and so you see it uh, particularly prized in the luxury yacht market. So if you go to where luxury yachts are being constructed and, and, you know, Italy or in the Netherlands where they're building some of the finest yachts in the world, the decking is going to be, or they want to make the decking out of this Myanmar teak. But as Faith also explained, there's a bit, big history of legal issues around the acquiring of the teak. And in particular, uh, if you go back to when the military was previously in charge, there was huge over-harvesting well beyond the limits they were supposed to be sticking to. Uh, and that developed big stockpiles of teak that was mostly illegal, and in particular, it's impossible to confirm whether or not it is legal. Now, if that timber is coming into Europe, they need to be able to confirm that that timber is legal, and they can't do it. So under European law, all of that timber coming into Europe, well, it's, it's breaking European law to bring it into Europe, and the EU has actually said you can't comply with European regulation if you're bringing Myanmar teak into or Myanmar timber into Europe. 
This um, is specifically yeah. the European Union timber regulation, yeah? That's right, yeah, the, the European Union timber regulation, which requires um, importers in this case of Myanmar teak to show that they've confirmed the legality of the source and they can't do it. So there's background here. Firstly, the stockpiles are from when the military was last in charge. As Faith said, since the, the democratic regime came in, there's been big improvements in, in governance, but there was still most of the teak that was coming out of Myanmar. In fact, all of the teak that we ever saw coming out of Myanmar was from sort of the before time when the military was in charge. They were they were um, massively over-harvesting. So all of the timber that we've seen coming out of Myanmar is from that period. Before there were more regulations, there was a locking ban for a period. They cracked down on the over-harvesting. But the timber coming into Europe was from previously. So it's been from that period where there's been these big problems with legality. Um, so, it, and, and in, in theory, then, the timber coming into Europe in particular should have been illegal, but there's obviously these problems throughout this luxury, really high-end um, sector of, of the timber that they're using. So, so for people um, who, who are listening who aren't necessarily au fait with um, what the EU timber regulation actually is in terms of how it functions, what are the, actually the requirements for businesses in Europe, say people that want to import Burmese teak to use in the yachting, in the yachting sector, but they want to do it legitimately? What do they need to do? What do they need to demonstrate to be in compliance with this regulation? Well, they, they, first of all, they need to show where the timber is from. Um, and depending on the sort of risk level that where that timber might come from, if there's known issues with legality, then it might need to go right back to the exact spot, you know, the trace it right back to the stump where it was harvested. Um, and Myanmar is a place where there are significant issues with legality, so that's absolutely a requirement there. Then they also need to be able to show that all along the supply chain, certain rules have been complied with. Um, Obviously, that the timber was cut down legally, uh, but then also that certain other rules were complied with as well, uh, including trade and customs rules, which might mean the paying of customs taxes, that kind of thing as well. And in the case of Myanmar, as I mentioned, there's you know these stockpiles. There was massive overharvesting, and they haven't been able to track what timber comes from the legal part, what comes from the illegal part. So when it arrives in Europe, somebody isn't able to show that this timber came from. They can't necessarily show where it came from specifically, but then they definitely can't show that it came from, that it was legally harvested or a part of a legal portion of harvest because it's all mixed up together. Yeah, I, I must. I, I get the impression from reading the various reports and briefings you and your colleagues have done in recent years that uh, a, a major factor in that is the Myanmar timber enterprise, which I understand basically functions as as what like a huge slush pool of all the timber, whether it's legal, illegal. And everything goes through that. Is that is that basically the case, or is that paring it down too much? It's the delightful sort of, yeah. empty. Hey, Alex. So yeah. the Myanmar Timber Enterprise is a state entity. It's there essentially. It's made up of, of different departments, but one of them is the extraction department, and it's also the entity that controls exports. So if uh, the way they have it's been around for a very long time it's been around since the 90s um so they auction off teak uh, to the highest bidders um and they are the regulators of it even though they themselves are highly corrupt but uh it is a state entity that really no longer is able to function again most of the people running it have uh, refused to work um, but also MTE is also in charge of 
5,000 state-owned elephants that, are, uh, that live with the Mahouts in various villages. Even they came out hmm. uh, into, into the uh, protest last week anyway. It was extraordinary. Um, but MTE is a very, like, like all the state-owned enterprises in, in Myanmar, um, it did serve a purpose for slush funds, and it's also, um, it, yeah, it, it's not exactly the most trustworthy. But it was a state entity whose role was to ensure the auctioning and exports of Myanmar teak. So th th it's really the problem is that, as Alex was saying, uh, if, if you need to track back the timber to a particular stump um, or a particular area of harvesting, that hits a brick wall when it gets as far as the MTE. It basically can't get further back than that. Is, is that? No, no, no. There, there are ways where they can, but not right down to the stump. Okay. Um, and, and even then, any information. So, you know, they started creating something called a green book. Um, there was a company um, that was willing to be paid vast sums of money to verify um, that they could actually trace the, the timber from the stump, you know, to, to market, which is absolutely preposterous. Um, they, may, they may have been able to have done it once in some place near Rangoon, um, but most of the valuable timber that is logged uh, under the annual harvest um, is are in place, most of it are in places that, that they can't. And even if they could, there was still a lot of laundering of, of um, timber that was nothing to do with the annual cut um, yeah. that the forest the forest department was not in control of. So they could never really verify. So even though there was tick boxing and there were lots and lots of certificates being provided and letters and vast sums of sort of useless information provided, nobody could actually verify where it came from. And that is the issue. So the risk is very high. Yeah. Um, but uh, companies continue to buy, as Alec can explain. Yeah, yeah. That's one of the things that obviously I was going to mention. We, one of the things you and your team have done is, is um, file formal um, concerns, I believe the, the terminology is, with European competent authorities over the legitimacy of teak being imported from uh, Myanmar. And yet it's still coming in, isn't it? How's that happening? Yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. So in a few years ago, EIA started publicizing these issues with, with European law and Myanmar timber and filed, as you say, a bunch of substantiating concerns with authorities that led to some enforcement. Um, but we, we've been able to monitor um, shipments of timber coming from Myanmar into Europe. And we noticed that in some countries it did disappear, uh, at least the direct uh, trade disappeared. So Germany or Belgium and the Netherlands, I think, are the examples of where there used to be quite a lot of Myanmar timber going in and now there isn't. But there was a respective rise in Myanmar timber going into other countries, particularly Italy, and some countries that had never had it before, like Croatia being a major example of where suddenly where there was no trade, it just appeared. And that um, meant that we, we developed a suspicion, particularly because we could see companies in Germany and the Netherlands still marketing and advertising Myanmar teak, that they just decided to go to other parts of Europe to import the timber and then bring it across Europe to where their clients were to sell it. And, so yeah. it would it be fair to say that the, the importers saw Croatia as a softer touch, somewhere less likely in their estimation to actually spot that this was coming and it shouldn't be? Yeah, I, I, we don't know exactly how strategic it was, but they they obviously thought, well, we'll give it a go in another part of, of, of Europe um, and at least we'll get ahead of the enforcement. 
Um, certainly in Italy, we haven't seen a big crackdown, so that they probably view that as being a bit of a softer touch. And they might have thought that the same thing would would arise with Croatia. We have had some, some work with the Croatian authorities and they have started to take some action there. So we're hopeful that we'll see some changes. Um, but the, the wheels are moving relatively slowly. Um, but they did, the, I'll say this, the Croatian authorities did share with us a bunch of information about what was happening in terms of those shipments. And that's been, been what's allowed us to find out about how this trade is working. And there was a specific company that we uh, named in a report last year called the Croatian Connection, a company called Viator Pula, who were landing this timber and then it was shipping off to companies throughout the rest of Europe. And so we were able to show how exactly this circumvention scheme was working with this one company being the importer for a range of different companies in the rest of the continent. And, and, and how does tax evasion fit into it as, a, as, a, as an aspect or a component of this trade? Well, a, a part of the information that we were able to see was um, in, in their attempts to show that timber was legal, they they'd collected a lot of documents, uh, the companies that were importing the timber. And that showed how timber was being declared when it was leaving Myanmar and also how it was being declared when it was entering Croatia. And we noticed some pretty significant differences in these declarations. Um, the, the value of the timber was different, the weight sometimes was different, and how the timber was being described, what actually the products were were being traded were was changing. Um, and some of it was a bit absurd, and this is what really caught our eye. For example, the way that it was being declared suggested that the timber was less processed, so less work had been done on it when it arrived in Europe than when it had left Myanmar. So <laughs> it's like saying uh, it was it was it was like saying we've got a when it left Myanmar that it was this you know ready a bit of decking ready to put on a ship, but when it arrived in Europe, it was back to being just a a bit of sort bit of sawn timber that wasn't really in need of a whole lot more processing done. That was pretty much the, the difference in the declaration. It's a a more extreme version you can imagine is saying that you know a chairs left Myanmar and a logs arrived in Europe, which is impossible. It was yeah. the difference wasn't that big, but that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, and what we noticed was that there's a, a tax, a customs tax in Myanmar that applies to less processed timber. Uh, that doesn't apply if it's a bit more processed. So they'd sort of fiddled with these descriptions in order to not have to pay that tax. Um, and we initially, we started with these, this, this small number of shipments, but when we looked at bigger data sets, we noticed that there were big differences around the world, actually, between what was being declared when it was leaving Myanmar compared to when it was arriving in other places. And so the potential loss of tax money for the Myanmar government was in the millions of dollars, probably. Yeah. I think it's really important to also note that the teak world is a very small world and some of these traders have been at it since the early 90s and they know exactly what they've been doing and they haven't changed one iota. So a lot of people have asked me over the years anyway, why, why bother with laws? Why are you dealing with legality issues when it comes to this timber? And it's because these traders know how to get around everything. Um, I think it's important to note a bit of background here is that like in the the first ever forest concessions um, came under the first hunter called Slork. Uh, that was in 1992 in Thailand, uh, sorry, in, uh, in the Karen state in, in South, South Burma. Mm. Um, and they were given to the Thais. And a lot, a lot of uh, European and American teak traders have made a fortune 
out of taking and buying teak from from there. And um, when the US and the EU, including the UK at the time, actually imposed sanctions, the problem was that they were just direct sanctions. So in other words, you, you couldn't buy directly from the country. So people were buying through Malaysia, through Singapore, et cetera, and it kind of set up a system um, that very clearly they're still using in order to circumvent any kind of regulations or restrictions that come into play. I think the difference now is that because we have this law and there is no confusion as to what is right or what is wrong or what is legal or illegal, um, then it's much easier for people to use that, to use the law, in order to say, hang on a second, you can't keep doing this. Um, yeah, the- you know, but in the meantime, obviously, the, the trees are being cut. But, but it, it's, uh, it's, it's a very important law. And it, it has recognized, it, it has at least brought timber uh, and forests onto the agenda of many people um, and the whole commercial value of it. And, and the lengths that people will go to get a piece of wood, it's quite extraordinary. Um, but as I say, you know, the team has been really focused on those traders because they have a very long and bloody history when it comes yeah. to Myanmar. And they were doing business, I presume, back before the, the 2011 when they knew who they were doing business with. Oh, absolutely. And it was the same people. And, you know, it's the same countries even. Italy's had a very long role um, in terms of, of not just timber, textiles, massive. Uh, a lot of the very famous designers were getting their, their textiles and materials uh, from Myanmar during, during sanctions. Italy has not been the best. Um, at upholding sanctions. They've found ways around it. And uh, when sanctions came off and the EUTR came in, the the timber regulation came in, they found another way to get around it. So these are not people who care. They just want it. They just see it as another obstacle in the road to to steer around. So it's it's really important, the work that's done, because it, it has disrupted something that they were controlling and making massive profit on for a long time. That I do know. Yeah, and I, I guess a big part of what we need to be doing is focusing on ways to make it ever harder for them to actually get around. You know, it's for like to block off all the all, all the workarounds they've come up with over the years and, and prevent new ones from being opened. Yeah, that's one way of looking at it, Paul. But there's also another way, and that's you know this issue is very much about both ends, hmm. where the trees are, and who's buying it, and there needs to be a lot more focus you know, on, on forest governance, because this, it, it all connects. And, you know, how, how forests are managed, if they're managed well, this can really be a massive indicator for, for other governance issues as well. And the, the unfortunate thing, I've been working with EIA now for over 20 years, and in all the countries we work, there's just one common denominator right at the center of all of this, and it's corruption. Yeah. And um, so, you know, we have to keep investigating and we have to keep researching and we have to join the dots and we have to expose and show who's behind it and how it works and who's actually making the money before we can even provide solutions. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Obviously, that leads me on coming to the next question, which is looking at the general situation in Myanmar as it is now, um, and it it sounds, as you said earlier, a horrific nightmare for the people actually stuck in that country. And then also given the 
the sense that people that still want materials from them are being prepared to work around despite the, the circumstances. What kind of response do you want to see um, the world take towards timber trade with Myanmar and Myanmar in general, in fact, um, in terms of products coming out of the country? I want to see the current minister of Monrec, the Ministry of Natural Resources, Environment and Conservation, I want him sanctioned. He has a military history. He's making profit out of it. I would like to see MTE and whoever's running it, because on February the 1st, um, the state-owned enterprises uh, were, everyone that's in charge are now military. The civilians have either gone on strike or refused to work, or they know they're not there anymore. That is a state entity that we have been focused on for many years um, that has definitely needed to be either gotten rid of or reformed. Um, we would like to see people not buy uh, timber, but as we know from this lot in this sector, how they operate on teak for their billionaire clients, it's going to have to go more than us just asking them not to do it. It has to be sanctioned. And um, no timber coming in, into any of the markets. And this poses a big problem because, of course, a lot of the stuff that is coming out of the country at the moment, as I said earlier, is being smuggled across land borders. So in a lot of ways, the EIA forest team is going to go back to basics. And we're going to have to go back and look at the ways things were done in the previous coup when I was bopping around in the jungles because I know exactly how that's going to work. And, um, you know, we've gone back. We've gone back 30 years. Yeah. Um, and it's going to be very difficult. Uh, one positive thing I will say, though, is that over the past 10 years, Generation Z, it's not just Burmese sitting in cities. Our friends in the ethnic areas have also gone to university and come back highly educated. And they've come back to work with their communities. They've come back with brilliant ideas. They know exactly what's needed. It's their forest. It's their land. They know how to, how to work it to, to, to make sure that it is sustainable. And these are the people that are going to be able to lead the ethnic areas, we believe. Um, and they are the people that are going to have to protect their forests. And they are the ones with whom, you know, we, we really want to work with. Yeah. Um, because the trees are not in Rangoon. The trees are not in Mandalay. <laughs> They're in these areas. But uh, unfortunately, the land borders are porous uh, and very complicated in terms of who controls them. But uh, just because this has happened doesn't mean that we aren't going to be focusing on forests in Myanmar. Yeah. And, and finally, if I can ask you both, um, obviously, given the situation, also given your experience of working in and around the country, um, what developments do you think we're actually likely to see for Myanmar in, in, in the future? Um, I mean, are, are we going to go back to the bad old days for the foreseeable future? Or do you think this is something that could be overturned or you know, put into a different way? I don't know, Paul. That point. I really don't know. I just know that every single day our friends are out there resisting. And um, there is a very important date coming up, which is March the 27th. It's uh, Armed Forces Day, which is always a big hoopla there. Um, and people are really anticipating something awful may happen. Um, I don't know. 
I, I just, you know, I, I really just want to to try and explain that the courage of of our friends and and the citizens of of, of the country is one thing, but already there's discussion about what can we do, um, where can where how how can this work, you know, how do we stop the plundering? Because this is money we're talking about. It's mm. not just the romantic version of a tree um, or somebody's land. This is this is millions and millions of dollars that can go into their coffers, and it's recognised in the country how important it is, um, you know, to try and stop that. But right now, the only thing I, I can can guarantee you is that they're not going to stop. And every single day. You know, we see the images and we see what's happening, but we also know there's planning going on. And, um, you know, the, the forest team of EI will support anybody that's looking to protect their forests and natural resources, and, and we will be there. We will absolutely be there as much as we can. But this is a movement that is coming from within the country. Um, the international community, as I said earlier, has been appalling in its response. Um, but they, this is their country. It has to come from within. And, um, you know, a lot of us are, are very, uh, we're open to any suggestions to see where it will go. But it's literally day by day right now. And I, I have absolutely no idea where this is going to go at the moment. Hopefully we can come back and have another chat at some point in the near future with better news to share with the world. But it's, it's, must say, it's encouraging to hear that, as you say, people are if you like, better forearmed and better prepared in some respects this time to resist. They've got contacts, they've got education, um, and they've got the knowledge they need to resist more effectively. I think, you know, what started off as jokes amongst us all, never take the phone away from a young person is now give them their phones. Yes. Just give them the phones. <laughs> yeah, they'll change the, the world with it. <laughs> they, uh, well, I think, uh, yeah, I think the dinosaurs in the military are slightly shocked at, at how they've been able to to non-violently resist th this this coup. Yeah. Oh well, well it's um, all, all strength of their arm in that case. Well, Faith and Alec, thank you so much for joining me today and for taking the time to talk. It's um, it's been an education as as well as so a pleasure to chat to you both. Um, if you've enjoyed listening to this podcast, please watch this space for future episodes and check out our website at eia-international.org to find out more about our work. Thanks for joining us, and wherever you are, do stay safe out there.